Matthew 15, verse 39. After sending away the crowds, he, Jesus, got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come then before your word. Give us humility to receive that this word might transform and renew us for how desperately we daily need you to do so in our lives if we would live lives pleasing unto you. We ask in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Beloved people of God, what attitude do we have when it comes to God's revelation, specifically to the Scriptures and to Christ as He is placed before us in the Scriptures? What attitude, what posture do we have before God's revelation? That is what we're considering today. Is it a suspicious testing acting as though we're Lord over all of the things that are being said to us, and we are seeking to determine whether or not these things are in accord with our own opinions. Suspicious testing, and the many forms that that can take. Or is it a humble receiving, a receiving in humility? We have just sung of those very things. Teach us, Lord, Full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. May your words prevail over unbelief. We have come to receive the food of your holy word. We need you to speak. We need to receive. And we're seeking to receive humbly. In the late medieval church, man-made traditions kept God's word, God's revelation from the people. So John Wycliffe led a courageous movement to bring God's word into the common tongue. In the 14th century, he and a group of other scholars translated a Bible into Middle English. 
This was a scandal to, to many and to many inside the church. One priest remarked that Wycliffe had so exposed the precious pearl of the gospel so as to be trampled underfoot by swine. This was what had been given to the, the class of priests, and they were to be the ones who held this precious pearl and decided when it was to be dispensed and how. But Wycliffe knew he was gripped by something which was, was an all-important central truth, that it was the Scriptures, God's revelation, not a man-made tradition, it was the Scriptures which held Jesus Christ. It was the person of Jesus Christ who is brought to us in the Holy Scriptures of the Bible. So if humanity was to know Christ and to come to know Him savingly, they must in some sense know the Scriptures. God has spoken. Let us tell all what He has said. It really boils down to something as simple as that. And He had five rules as people were first encountered with a Bible that they understood clearly and in their own mother tongue. Five rules. He said this, first you obtain a reliable text, which is part of his work. Second, you, under, you must understand the logic of Scripture, understand what it's saying, understand the sweep of what God is doing in redemptive history. Third, you compare Scripture with itself. When you encounter uh, a passage which is difficult to understand, you make sense of it in light of the clearer passages in Scripture. Compare Scripture with itself. And then the last two are really where we're focusing today. First is this. He said, maintain an attitude of humble seeking. Humble seeking. Come to the Word of God in the humility that says, I need something here. For I need to be changed. I need to be transformed. For it is my own sin and my own flesh that's keeping me from a deeper faith, from a deeper devotion. That's fourth. And then fifth, receive the instruction of the Holy Spirit. You receive what God has been doing. You, hu- doing. you humbly seek, and then you receive. This is what he said to do. And this is the kind of posture that we are to have before God's Word. And this is what Jesus warns us against. Right? The opposite attitude is what he's warning us against in this passage. Let's consider it together. First this, are you testing or are you trusting? Are you testing or are you trusting? Jesus, as we have said, is back in the homeland, so to speak. He's gone back across the Sea of Galilee to the western side. He's back using our kind of Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan map that we used a couple of weeks ago with the Sea of Galilee as Lake Michigan. He was in western Michigan. Now he crosses back over. He's in something like the northern shore of Chicago here, back in the region of Magdala. This is where Mary Magdalene hailed from. And he comes uh, back into homeland, but he is greeted with enemies. What we might say is something like treasonous enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have now, in their rejection of Jesus, they have rejected the one whom God has sent to them. So in many ways, they are enemies from the inside. We would say something like traitors or 
treasonous. They're a strange team, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It shows us the kind of opposition that is growing against Jesus when the Pharisees and the Sadducees have now joined together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, essentially. The Pharisees and the Sadducees want to get back to the good old days where they kind of bickered amongst themselves. And so they say, well, we need to get rid of Jesus, so let's team up and work to get rid of this nuisance And then once he is out of the picture, we can go back to haggling over who has the correct tradition. That's really kind of what's going on here. And things are changing in the Gospel of Matthew. We talked about how the Canaanite woman really has brought about a shift in the Gospel of Matthew. That when Jesus says, oh woman, great is your faith, it ushers in this new stage in the Gospel where we are now moving towards the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ being given to a people from foreign lands, a people of foreign tongue and other traditions, other people groups. Things are changing. We're seeing that slowly come to fruition. Jesus goes back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and it will be very quick that he leaves again. So he has been in Gentile territory Working miracles, he feeds the 4,000 men besides women and children. They go back into the homeland. You would think, you would expect that here we would have a, a warm homecoming. But we see just the opposite, in fact, don't we? And so Jesus leaves very quickly. Again, he then crosses the Sea of Galilee very quickly again. But first, it says that the Pharisees and Sadducees have come to test him. So there's a negative connotation with what's going on here. What are they doing? They're testing Jesus. They're saying, prove yourself. You prove to us who you are, and we will decide whether or not we will give you any allegiance, any support. We will be the ones to decide. We're going to force this information that you give to us, force it through the prism of our various traditions, and we will decide. But of course, there's already a hostility there. They've made up their minds regarding Jesus. So they have come to test him. You prove who you are, Jesus. And that's the the attitude that we need to be aware of in our own hearts. The flesh will creep up. And as we come to the word of God, is our heart saying, God needs to prove who he is to me before I decide whether or not I'm going to submit to this word? Or do we come humbly seeking, saying, I need everything that God will say to me. I need it all because I need my flesh, my sin to be crucified. I need to, as Romans 12 says, I need to be transformed. I need to be renewed. Each and every day, I need my mind and my heart to be renewed. They say, Jesus, you test. Uh, Jesus, you prove yourself. It's a testing. And there's a, a, a likening there to what Satan does in Matthew chapter 4. He came out to meet Jesus in the wilderness to what? To test him. He wanted to see what Jesus was all about, testing there. We remember the mumbling, the grumbling, perhaps, of the people of Israel in the Old Testament in Exodus 17. Moses, give us water to drink. Have you brought us out here in order to kill us? We told you, you should have let let us stay in Egypt. There we had food and we had water, we had provision. Sure, we were enslaved, but we knew where the next meal was coming from. And Moses says, why? Why do you test the Lord? This one who has shown himself so faithful to you, why do you test him to constantly need this crutch of his proving himself to you? He is Lord. Do you not see? Do you not see what you are doing? 
And so they are asking, the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking for a sign from heaven, not realizing, of course, that the sign from heaven is before them. Not connecting in their minds all that has been said in the prophetic writings, like what we just read in Isaiah 35, didn't we? The blind will see. The lame man will leap for joy. Behold, God will come. He will come. And when he comes, here is what you will see. And remember when, the, when John the Baptist's disciples came to, to Jesus and said, John wants to know, are you the one? And Jesus says, the blind receive their sight, the lame hear the lame man walks, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who, the Greek verb there is scandalizo, and there's a connection there. Being scandalized, saying, I'm, I'm not going to submit to, to this, this one who claims to be the Messiah. Jesus says it's being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled. So they ask for a sign from heaven which is a, would be a wonderfully impressive miracle. Do something that's disconnected from healing. Do something that's disconnected from your teaching. Just stand there and show us who you are. Jesus says a wicked and adulterous generation is the one that asks for this kind of thing. Those words would have stung quite a bit. There's a likening there to Old Testament Israel. And uh, those who had gone after other gods, adulterous, they were unfaithful to their vows. Jesus is saying, you're being unfaithful to your vows to be God's covenant people because you are standing as Lord and King over what he is revealing. Christ is the revelation from God. And thus it is put to all men to come and lay themselves down before him and to give themselves to him. Secondly, we, we see that miracles and the gospel go hand in hand. Jesus can't, or he is not going to just work miracles just so as to uh, give the, the satisfaction of those who make these demands, right? All that he does, all that he works is a support to his proclamation and his teaching. Most often his miracles are connected to faith. Remember the the Canaanite or the Syrophoenician woman. Well, woman, great is your faith. Remember the man who is lowered down through the roof. And when Jesus sees the faith of his friends, he says, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat. Go and walk. So all that Jesus does is to lend support to his proclamation, to his teaching ministry. It's pointing beyond itself. You know, when someone was healed, it's not as if they were granted immortality. They weren't glorified. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he had to die again. And so what Jesus does in his healing ministry is a support to his proclamation, which demands that men come before him. There's a, a similarity here with what happens in Exodus where Moses comes before Pharaoh into the throne room in Egypt, and Moses is working these miracles, all of these signs, all of these wonders, whether it be what he begins throwing the staff down uh, or all of the plagues that he brings by the power of, of God. And Pharaoh is, is, is Lord, sovereign, and he is saying, well, I'm going to decide whether or not your God is anything, whether or not I should submit to him and do as he says, I'm going to be the one. The Pharisees and the Sadducees then are, are acting like Pharaoh in that instance. 
they will only be impressed with the show of power. But to the one who comes and lays himself down before Jesus Christ, he is given something that goes beyond any show of mere power. Jesus says something that is useful here in Luke chapter 10. He sends the disciples out to proclaim the kingdom and to work miracles. They come back and they say, Jesus, we were casting out demons. We were healing. We were doing all of these amazing things. And Jesus responds to them by saying this, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you have eternal life. Rejoice not that you possess some semblance of power that is impressive in the eyes of the world. And so that helps us understand what is Jesus going to, what lesson he's going to give his disciples here in just a moment. And that helps us think, are we of the spirit of testing or are we of the spirit of trusting? Are we those who are humbly seeking to receive Or are we those who say, you know what, I'm going to decide whether or not I should submit to this Lord, to this word, to this teaching? Do you come to receive, to be renewed, to be transformed? Do you trust the Lord or do you test him? Secondly, are you seeking to grow? Are you growing spiritually or are you more worried about your stomach growling? So growing or growling, are you growing spiritually or can all you think about is the growling of the stomach? So they go to the other side. Notice the speed with which Jesus and his disciples withdraw. And Matthew is saying they go back to the west side of the lake, north shore. He has this interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They go back to the east side. Now they are back on the east side, probably on the northeast side of the lake, up by Caesarea Philippi. They are back in Gentile territory. And as they reach the other side, Jesus gives his disciples a warning. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Something about what they teach, something about who they are will seep into your mind and work like leaven. It'll work all the way through the lump of dough and infect everything. Most of the time, leaven has a negative connotation in in Scripture. Jesus gives them this warning, and then he has to rebuke them because their mind is focused on the wrong things, right? They're focused on food. This is understandable because they're young men. Probably many of them would have been something like their early 20s, and uh, maybe some of you moms out there, uh, perhaps if you've already had children that you've sent away, you remember the boys coming home from college, right? And This is like the horror of the fridge being empty when they come home. So you can understand how these young men are worried about and focused on food. But this is disappointing to Jesus. He rebukes them. He says, how can, why is this where your mind is? His point is that since he is with them, they should trust him to be able to provide. Now kids, Have you ever had the experience where your parents come to you and say, I should not need to teach you this lesson again? You're old enough to where you ought to know that you do not treat your little brothers and sisters that way. You're old enough to understand that you do not talk to mom and dad that way. You're old enough to understand that this is wrong. You have seen these things taught to you. You have learned this lesson before. It shouldn't need to be taught to you again. That's in a sense what Jesus is doing here. 
He's saying, you have been with me so long, and you have seen what I have done. Specifically, we're, we're now in the shadow of these two amazing miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, in both of which Jesus has granted this abundance of provision. It doesn't mean that that abundance of provision is going to be there every moment of every day. But what Jesus is saying is, I have shown to you that I'm sensitive to these things, I'm sensitive to your needs, and I am able and willing to provide for you. Remember in the feeding of the 4,000, it is his compassion. He has compassion on the crowds because they are hungry. He is not willing to send them away hungry. He knows that that would be dangerous to do so, and so he provides for their needs. The lesson that's here for us is this, that if we if we know God in Jesus Christ, are we coming to the promises that are filled, that with which Scripture is filled, to say that the Lord will provide for us, to say that the Lord knows about our needs and what uh, we would need to have to get through life? Do we think about those promises and do we trust in them, knowing that the Lord holds our lives in His hands? Or are we so concerned with our earthly necessities that we never get past them to focus on what, we, what Jesus would have his people be focused on, the kinds of, of heart and soul things that would lift our eyes to heaven and increase our communion with him. He's worried that the thinking of the Pharisees and Sadducees is going to sink into their hearts and affect them negatively. But their minds are so caught up below it's not to say that God doesn't care about our needs, our earthly needs, providing food and shelter and all of those things. Of course he does. In fact, Jesus has just shown us that it is so. He, he fed the crowds. What he's saying is, trust me and now listen to my words. Let us move beyond these things to focus on something else. In, a, in such a spiritually starved age, we can so easily get caught up with these very same things, how quickly our eyes are brought downward. And we should know these things by now, brothers and sisters. We should have a, a sensitivity to the matters of the heart. We should understand what God is calling us to in his word, a richer and fuller devotion and communion with him. Do we take time in our lives, to meditate on the glory of Christ. John Owen says, I believe correctly, that this is the chief exercise of faith. What does it mean to have faith? You get down to the nuts and bolts of it. You're trusting in Christ, but you are allowing, you are meditating on the glory of Christ and allowing that glory to fill your heart and drive all that you do. Do you take time to do that? Or are your eyes so drawn to what is below that you never get past them? Do you take time to consider what might be plaguing you spiritually? Do you take time to be sensitive to the kinds of errors that can seep into your thinking from which you need to be transformed and renewed? Are you growing spiritually or is the growling stomach pulling your eyes downward? And then finally, the leaven of living, the leaven of living. We're going to take that picture of leaven, see the negative connotation that Jesus gives it, but then understand that uh, we can use that to realize that the leaven of Christ can work itself through our hearts and through our minds such that we gladly give all that we are to him. So the leaven of living, 
the leaven of living. In sum, what Jesus teaches his disciples here is that there is a leavening influence that springs from something the Pharisees or Sadducees do or teach. And if they are not aware of this, if his disciples are not aware of this, and if they do not fight against it, they will pay a steep spiritual price. And what it amounts to is this. If the attitude of the Pharisees and Sadducees makes its way into our hearts, we will not be in a position to receive God's ongoing enlivening grace. But if we heed Jesus' words, if we heed the life of God uh, that will work itself into our hearts in a leavening way and go through to every corner of our hearts, we will joyfully give all that we are to the Lord. What are the errors of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, really, it's, it's unbelief and pride. It's unbelief and pride. What we just sang before we had the sermon, let the truth of God's word, let their truth prevail over unbelief. Right? At the root, that's where all sin comes from. All sin is rooted in unbelief. And it's unbelief and pride. As we have seen, they, they, they disbelieve God's revelation. This one who has come is the, the explicit one sent from God, the Son of God, who has himself come as Redeemer. They attempt to control Jesus. They attempt to tame Jesus and keep him under control. And that is what Jesus warns his disciples against. That's what God is warning us against. For the error of the Pharisees and Sadducees is still there in the human heart. That's the point. That's what we need to see. He's warning them against this. Do we keep God and his word and his grace, his sanctifying influence in a place where the ultimate word on every matter is still ourselves? Is this in line with my opinions? Or do we see that the sinfulness of our hearts and our flesh needs to be mortified through the grace of God, through the truth of God, that, that as we wake up every day, there is, there's this principle in us that's drawing us to error, that's drawing us to a hardness of heart. And unless we're being transformed by God's word, that heart's not going to be fertile. It's not going to allow the seed of God's word to sink in. Jesus is saying, beware. Of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Do we have a humble, believing, trusting disposition that receives as from a Lord, as from a king, as from a ruler, as from a just judge? Is that how we are viewing all that God says to us in His Word? An exact connection to this is the humility to recognize that we need something to jolt us out of our sinfulness. We need something to awaken us out of that which naturally blinds us. We need that each week, each day, to be transformed, to be renewed, to have armor and weapons given to us so that we may go to battle against all that rages within us and all that rages outside as well. Matthew sets up the stark uh, contrast with what we will see in next week's passage, which in many ways is kind of the, the pinnacle of all we've been leading to in the Gospel of Matthew, where Peter will say, in Gentile territory, by the way, which is a, an important factor, Peter will say, you are the Lord, the Christ. And what does Jesus say? He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. My Father has revealed this to you and have you knelt down before what God has revealed and given yourself in total submission to it. That's the question. The question. The wonder is that shortly following Peter's confession, after the confession of Christ in chapter 16, then he will be shortly brought to the Mount of Transfiguration. And the lesson is this. When we behold Christ by faith, there is where we will see him in his glory and in his power. It is the heart of faith that brings itself first to Christ that sees him then exalted in power and glory. The eye of faith sees that. See, that is why the chief exercise of faith is to meditate upon the glories of Christ. And when we see him with the eyes of faith, it is then that we will see him in his glory. Both in this life, as we see more and more the glory of Christ in our hearts and in our lives, as we're more and more swept up and taken with that notion of who Christ is, a deeper knowledge of who he is, and a, and a growing gladness to come before him and give to him all that you are. And then leading, of course, to the consummation of all things when all the faithful will see Christ really and truly, see him in his exalted glory. So we do that now, brothers and sisters. We see Christ, the glory of Christ by faith. And we await the day that we will see him and we will see him as he is in his glory. So there is then a, a leaven of Christ Eleven of Christ. Beware of the leaven and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Unbelief and pride that perhaps allows you by the way of man-made tradition or your own opinions or the disposition that you have before the Word of God to say, you know what, I'm just going to keep that right here. I'm going to treasure something within my heart that is sinful and I'm not going to embrace the transformation, the renewing grace that God gives to me in His Word. Beware. Unbelief and pride, but there is a, a leaven of Christ. For when the glory of Christ seeps into a humble and fertile heart, then what works itself all the way through is the desire of the new heart to give all to Him. See, the mindset of the Pharisees and the Sadducees makes one hopelessly prideful and unbelieving. The leaven of Christ goes straight to the heart, sanctifies your thoughts and energizes your hands to do all for him. Indeed, beloved, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But if we may use the picture to our advantage, embrace and live on the leaven of Christ as you have faith in him, who is himself the bread of life. Amen.